Broadway Bullet, Volume 808, for November 28, 2017. A Touch of Cabaret and the League of Professional Theater Women. Be sure to visit broadwaybullet.com and subscribe for free. Do not miss a single episode. On this episode, Broadway Titan and cabaret performer Karen Mason stops by with her husband, songwriter extraordinaire Paul Rolnick. Each have a new album and tons of wisdom to share. Ira Lee Collings, 81-year-old Mac Hansen award winner for 2017, is here to explain his gay geezer power. And Kelly Lynn Harrison and Kimberly Lauren Eaton discuss their involvement with the League of Professional Theater Women, as well as their own careers and origin stories. So, order a cocktail. All right, this is Broadway Bullet, Volume 808. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and uh, this episode is running a little bit late. I'm sorry, uh, but... I was just recently in New York City getting a bunch of new interviews, and we've got so much good stuff. I am putting up the schedule tomorrow for the rest of the season on uh, BroadwayBullet.com, so you can go check that out. Uh, at the end of this episode, I might uh, tease a couple of names we got coming up, but it's pretty darn good. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors, again, the DGF, the Dramatist Guild Foundation. You may notice that's a different word at the end. It's not fund, it's Foundation. Uh, they've been expanding what they do over the years and they've uh, adjusted their name to match the scope of their works. So uh, that's a change. Here's our message. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. I'd like to thank uh, my school, the University of Providence. They are our travel sponsor. They pay for me to get there as well as a student to come help out and meet all these people and stay there. And this is all because it relates to the program that I created. It's the School of Theater and Business Arts. You learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist because it is important. If you hear anything in this show, it's that... These artists have to treat themselves as an entrepreneurial business, and you learn how to do that as well as your art at the University of Providence. Check us out. There's a link at broadwaybullet.com, and uh, if you are a senior or junior, 
come on out and visit us. We'd love to see you. Cabaret Corner. All right. I am sitting here with Karen Mason and Paul Rolnick, husband <laughs> and wife team uh, that, that work together and separately in this business. Uh, Karen Mason's just released her first, not the first, seventh CD? Seventh CD. Uh, it's About Time. And I believe this was also produced by your husband. That yes, Paul. it was. That is true. And you wrote a couple songs on here. And we and you yourself have also released a CD, Shoot the Moon. Shoot for the Moon. Oh, Shoot for the Moon. I am just clearly not meant to read English. <laughs> <laughs> but you're getting better every day. And just as a side note, as we talk about you, I just wanted to let her... I'm especially excited. Not that not that you aren't lovely, Paul, but I like I wore out as the world goes round in college. Uh, yeah. Cast album was and your vocal your vocal interpretation and performance was just amazing. Well, thank you. So. I, listen, I, I've always loved Candor and Ebb, and and uh, actually be able to work on that show. I did the workshop when it was out at the Whole Theater in New Jersey. And then bringing it in and being able to work with them. I mean, what a gift that was to be able to actually say that I, I met John Kander and Fred Ebb. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think we'll kind of do this in a couple steps because there's so much I want to talk to you about that, you know, maybe sure. we'll try to kind of organize. We'll talk a little bit. We'll start off talking a little bit about your CDs. Okay. Um, and, and what you got going on with that. Then I would like to maybe talk to you both, you know, about your kind of your careers and where they intersect and diverge. Um how long have you guys been married? We've been married 18 years, yeah, but so we've been together 26. Uh, yeah. 26. 91 yeah. was yeah. the... Uh, 91 was the, the year that it all happened. Yeah, so I'd like happened. to also kind of continue about how do you maintain a relationship as artists? Because I think oh. you know, a lot of people do. And then close off with some like, you know, roadblocks, career things. What are some of the... What were some of the things along the way that maybe made you feel that this wasn't going to happen. Right? Sure. So I, I think we'll kind of go in that that order of talking about things. Cool. So, so f to start us off, two albums, two things coming up. What? Tell us a little bit about your albums and what inspired them. And Well, know. you know, it's I, I did my first CD back in 1984, 85, and I did not have access to it. And then when I met Paul, who was songwriting and um was you were just starting to get into record producing then you were doing well, some studio work i i've been singing sessions for quite a while jingle singing in new york and and um along the way had always done project work tv themes um uh industrial writing um so when I when we started getting together, it just seemed like a perfect thing to be able to do more CDs, you know, to make that transition into doing more recording. And and um, so I, we started working together on. He's produced all my CDs, and this one happened. It's about time happened uh, right after marriage equality passed in New York State. I got hired to be a wedding singer. <laughs> and so um, we were going out to dinner with the gentleman who had hired me, and we just both fell in love with these guys. And I said, Paul, you have to write them a song uh, for their wedding. I mean, what a perfect wedding gift for them. And what a perfect opportunity because yeah. marriage equality had just passed. 
And within, oh gosh, maybe three, four days, he had worked with uh, one of his co-writers, Shelley Markham, and written the song. And well, it, it took more than three or four days. <laughs> you see, it's a miracle of my life, yeah. Um, I mean, the, their wedding was about two months, two and a half months away from that time we had dinner with them, and they talked to Karen and myself about what they had in mind for her uh, as, as the guest artist in, in their reception. And that's when Karen said, oh, these are great people. You should write a song for them. And, and uh, so I thought about it and thought, yeah, good idea. Not easy. <laughs> good idea. And then That's I, when marriage works. You see when it's like and, that. And then I, 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 I started to think about what that meant to them. And I came up with a chorus in my head that I liked and a way that I would wanted it set up. And I was, I had just started writing with my buddy Shelley Markham, West Coast based, uh, has musical accompanied a lot of very well known uh, cabaret, cabaret and, and TV people. But uh, we had written one song and I called him and said, Look, this is time sensitive. You want to work on this with me? <laughs> and I got an idea for a course, and I got a scan, and he said, sure. So he happened to be coming into town uh, about three weeks after that. So knowing that we were going to collaborate, I started writing verse lyrics. Shelley is, is a music guy. He's, he's not a word guy. He's a good word editor. But... Um, I do both, and whenever I collaborate with someone, it's kind of like I fill in what they don't do, and yeah. we bounce things back and forth. And so I, we actually met at another one of Shelley's friends that we, he, we, he was staying at to, uh, to create the song. And the hook was amazing. It was, it's about love, it's about life, it's about time. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's just perfect. It's just perfect. This is a good time to maybe take a listen to that track? That'd be great. <laughs> I think it'd be a great idea. <laughs> it's the title cut from Karen's new CD. I have had a sacred dream about us. You and I have waited for so long. Walking down the aisle with each other. And it's about love, it's about life, and 
Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I've never sounded better. <laughs> what, so, so what else is going on? Continuing on with the, talking about your albums here. Well, uh, with the, I've been doing a lot of <coughs> readings and presentations of new musicals. I just did a, 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 a performance, a production of um, a show called uh, Chasing Rainbows. Uh, out at good speed last year, and we're doing a big lab of it in June and July. Um, I've, you know, trying performing everywhere. I'm go we're going to Chicago and doing the CD release there. And right now, I'm, uh, you know, in May doing Mom, Don't Tell Mamas, and which is a club I opened actually in 1983 with Nancy Lamott. Really? Yeah. So it's definitely going back home for me. <laughs> You'll see my, you know, posters from the 80s all over the walls of Don't Tell Mama, all the many hairdos and, and shoulder pads. And um, I've got a show that I've been trying to pitch called Unfinished Business, 
which I wrote about the gentleman I worked with for 16 years, whose name was Brian Lasser, who was a songwriter and my music director for 16 years, who died in 1992. And I wrote a show about him with Barry Kleinbord and Christopher Denny um, using Brian's music and also one of Paul's songs to tell the story of, um, of our relationship. And then also, what do you do after you lose somebody who was so integral to your artistic growth? So, you know, always got a lot of uh, fire irons in the fire. You know, you really have to. I, I always compare um, what we do to um, having, do you remember that, that guy on, well, you might be too young, but on Ed Sullivan, the guy who had like all these plates spinning on poles. I've seen clips. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so to me, that's what we all do. Yeah. <laughs> we have a billion things yeah. that we're trying to keep you gotta, know, up on the poles. Got to keep those plates spinning. <laughs> that's right. All of them. All of them. All of them. Yeah, constantly. Because, you, you know, you just never know. You know, that's the great thing about what yeah. we do. And also the kind of scary thing about what we do is that, you know, sometimes those plates aren't going to happen. Yeah. So, Paul, how many, yes. is this your first album, or how many albums have you done? This is my first release. Okay. And <laughs> and it was a long time coming. Is, is, is this anything to do with myself as a writer, composer, producer? I know exactly what I want to do working with others and helping them, but then when it's for myself, I'm like, what do I want to do? <laughs> well, as, as a writer... Um, Producer, artist, is anything ever done? That's the first question. Um, it is now because I finally put it out on a CD. I will not review those songs and remix them one more time. But, you sure? <laughs> I will make sure it doesn't happen. Um, because they, they're out in the real world now. And I'm very proud of the way, of, of the product. Uh, I I um, had a bunch of very astute, smart friends that I co-write with, that I co-produce with, who I bounced off. Okay, am I done with this one? Is my vocal in the right place? Is the reverb okay? <laughs> um, all those insane things that only fellow producers will talk about, or fellow engineers. But the reason the reason it came out at all is because one morning Karen said to me, you should put out your CD when we release my next one. And I thought, sure. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's crazy. And then I thought, why not? Well, and, I kind of thought you would never get it done. Well, if there wasn't a deadline. And, and that's the truth. Yeah. So I'm, oh, I understand that completely. Absolutely. The, the hardest yeah. thing anyone who does that kind of stuff, which is produce, uh, just so your audience understands, a producer, a record producer, is the same as a director in theater. He's the guy who puts it all together and is responsible for the product, the finished product. When you do that so many times for other people, and you become the artist, and we all have a blind spot. Okay. The point I'm trying to make is I don't think anyone knows the innate... Anyone who carries their instrument with you, any singer, really doesn't know what they sound like. 
They know if they're in tune, out of tune, the vibrato they liked or whatever, but they don't know the innate quality and, and how they sound because it's inside of their body. So um, that's tricky. That's tricky when you're producing yourself. That's the hardest thing. But it was time for me to do it, and I produced enough CDs, and I sung enough that I was able to marshal all the forces and put it together and, and come up with something I'm proud of. So uh, is there one particular song you'd like to share with our listeners on? Well, there's, there's the title cut, Shoot for the Moon, is a duet with a fabulous singer named Karen Mason. That's right. She was cheap. She was very reasonable for this production. And, and uh, yeah. that, that song has been recorded a number of times, uh, most notably by Roger Whitaker and Lenny Seal, but it was nominated for an Emmy, and it, the nominated Emmy version is, is the one that Karen and I sang. So uh, I would say if I had one, <laughs> that would be a good choice. All right, well, let's take a listen. Here we are, it's 2 a.m. We're close enough to touch. There it is, waiting to be said. But no one's saying much. The lights are low, and candles glow around your angel eyes. I think you Tree. 
Well, I do got somebody else coming in here. I actually oh. wish I could talk. I could keep talking for <laughs> well, ever. It's been a pleasure. Thank and you so thanks. much. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Karen Mason, Paul Roldick. Thank you very much. Best thanks, of luck Michael. with your CDs. Thank uh, you. Thanks. People can grab them on iTunes, I'm assuming. As iTunes, well as, Amazon. Yes. Yeah. Amazon. My website. CD uh, Baby. Yeah. A bootleggers table on. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, thanks. On yeah. the street. <laughs> <laughs> But we're still $20. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for stopping by today. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right. We've got a lot more in that interview with Karen Mason and Paul Rolnick. And, but we can't put it all in this episode. So like we do with everything else, you can find by going to broadwaybullet.com. You can go to this episode, the show notes, and find the links and everything to listen to the unedited full interviews for all these interviews that we get. So if... If you really want to hear a lot more from these two, and they have so much more wisdom to share, please go to broadwaybullet.com, search the show notes for volume 808, and listen to the full thing. Listening Room. Coming up a little bit later in this program, we're going to be talking with Ira Lee Collings, an 81-year-old cabaret artist that is self-described gay geezer power. But to kind of whet your appetite a little bit for that... We've got a song performed by him, Ira Lee Collings, singing Nothing Can Stop Me Now. Thank you, hey, New York. Let's do it. Stand well back, I'm coming through. Nothing can stop me now. Watch out, world, I'm warning you. Nothing can stop me now. Now I know that there is a promised land I'm gonna find it and oh Hope is high and I'm gonna cling to it Tie every string to it Give everything to it I'll make all my dreams come true Before my final bow How I'll do it, who can say? But I know I will someday Watch out, world, I'm on my way Nothing can stop me now I shall find success today Nothing can stop me now Yesterday was yesterday Nothing can stop me now Now I know the future is mine to have I'm hereby taking a vow from now on, I'm gonna begin again. Stick out my chins again. Go out and win again. Get you gone, you sky of gray. Farewell, you furrowed brow. Now my future is crystal clear. No more woe for me to fear. I'm gonna stand this world up on its ear. And I'll succeed somehow. I'd walk a million miles for one of your smiles. Nothing can stop me. Nothing can stop me. Nothing can stop me. No, no, no. Now
Breaking the business. The League of Professional Theater Women is all about advocacy and networking for women in the arts. And uh, I myself have become quite a feminist, moving for equality, especially since beginning my teaching career and realizing truly the uh, difference between the number of students and the ratio of students of women to men versus the number of roles uh, women to men um, has definitely uh, woke me, so to speak, over the past <laughs> few years. So I'm uh, here to talk about, and we're just kind of probably going to just randomly discuss issues on how to move the needle. But first, um, why don't I introduce our guest? We've got Kimberly Lauren Eaton. Hello. Did I pronounce that right? That's correct. And uh, she is a producer. And a director. And producer and director extraordinaire. And then we have Kelly Lynn Harrison. Yes. An actress. Yes. And is there an Anne too? Or? Occasional <laughs> dramaturg director, but mostly I wear the director hat. I mean, the actor hat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, right, before we get started, really quick, I like the term you used, Kelly Lynn, of uh, what is your origin story in New York, kind of in a, in a nutshell? Who are you so our listeners can get to know? Sure. I have been working uh, in New York for 20 years now. I came out here in 97, 98, and uh, dove into taking additional training and auditioning and very luckily happened upon a community of like-minded actors that began creating work together to give ourselves opportunities and get out there more. And that uh, led to a connection with uh, a director at Ensemble Studio Theater who co-runs their, their Young Blood program, which is their Playwrights Under 30 program, and R.J. Tolan, and he had need of an actor like me for a project. And so I've been working pretty steadily at Ensemble Studio Theater, which focuses on developing new work. All right. And uh, Kimberly, Kimberly Loren? Hi. How are you? <laughs> um, I grew up in New York. I'm a native New Yorker. Um, my husband likes to say we're a, we're a, uh, a dying breed. Um, but um, so I grew up as an actor here and... Um, Fairly early in my adult career, um, I got into teaching, and I taught acting for 10 years. And then, Where did you teach? Um, all over. Okay. At one point, I think I had uh, 14 different tax forms. So, <laughs> so um, then got into program management for theater and uh, ran an off-Broadway theater for about five years, um, the Marjorie Estine Theater as their artistic and managing director, from that, realized I really um, love both directing and commercial producing, and kind of uh, started my own theater company, um, a commercial production company. And I, today, I focus on creative development of new work, um, both as a director and a producer. All right. Now, tell us a little bit about kind of the <coughs> League of Professional Theater Women. Uh, you said it at the top that yeah. the League is about networking and advocacy for women, um, theater artists. Uh, our members are women who want to be part of a network that is changing how women are seen in theater and providing more opportunities and advocacy and being part of that conversation. Yeah. Our mission is to champion <coughs> women in the professional theater. What, what, is it, what does it take for one to get involved? 
you know, uh, to join your group? Well, there is an application process. Um, and sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. Kelly Lynn's our uh, VP of membership. Um, so there's an application, and uh, you need two recommendations. There's different levels that people can be involved as members um, that is based on your experience in the theater. So for those who are just starting out in professional theater, we have an apprentice program um, that pairs you with a committee uh, that, uh, in the league. Our, our league is completely volunteer member run, and so... Um, the committees are the engine of what uh, the the league is capable of doing. So there's advocacy and communications and membership and heritage and networking. all these networking, all these different committees. And so the apprentices are paired with a committee and work for a year to two years. And usually by the end of that, they have enough experience in real world theater and connections with the league that they can apply for a different level of membership. But for professionals who are out there in the trenches doing it, we have associate members who've been working for at least three years in professional theater and uh, <coughs> full members who have been working in um, uh, theater for five years or more. So it's almost an old-fashioned guild uh, feel in how we tier our membership. It's based on ex years of experience. Can I do this as a guy? You cannot be a member, but you can be what we call a friend of the league. And so, and you're um, welcome at many. Darn it, there aren't enough places for white guys to get <laughs> But we are all about fellow advocates who, who champion uh, women in theater. And so we do have something that we call friends to the league. And, and we have many events where men are welcome. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, typically, any event that is open to the public yes. is we welcome men, and we also welcome male volunteers. Although, to be honest, I haven't seen any seen any of those crop up. So we do you're see interested in networking with some. Women. We do see quite a bit of men um, join us at our annual Big Mingle, which is our major fundraiser yes. every year. Yes. Yeah, and it that's a pretty diverse group of people that we get there. It's our our Big Mingle is we just had it in March, and um, it's really an inspiring night. Because it's our opportunity to give out the league's awards. We have several awards. We're that, one of the only organizations that yes. that awards women in theater through um, various disciplines and throughout various stages of their career. So you'll see, you know, um, women in indie theater and the commercial theater um, doing a myriad of different kinds of work. And um, and each of the awards have a specific thing that they are um, rewarding and championing. So, for example, mm -hmm. our Josephine Abadie Award is the um, the award that uh, honors an emerging artist uh, whose work reflects cultural diversity. Um, our Lee Reynolds Award honors um, usually directors, but honors those um, whose work. Uh, inspires cultural change, cultural and, and social change. Um, you know, the Ruth Morley Award is Design. for designers, for women designers. It goes to a different discipline every year. And this year it went to Linda Cho, Linda Cho who <laughs> is nominated for a Tony for yeah. Anastasia. And has another Tony. And has a Tony already for, for Gentleman's yes, Guide. Yes, mm -hmm. Gentleman's Guide. Yeah. And she was, she gave a really inspiring speech. So they're introduced by somebody who knows their career, and then they themselves have the opportunity to speak. And so to hear 
women speaking about their careers and and what it means to them that their peers are seeing what they're doing and acknowledging what they're doing. Everybody sort of walks away really bolstered and inspired. It's really amazing because um, as a woman coming up in theater, I, I can tell you when I shifted into um, into commercial producing, there is there weren't, and I've been doing it for the past five years, commercial producing versus nonprofit producing. I've seen a huge change in the last five years in the number of women producers. But a few years ago, you I could name them all. I could just like very quickly sit down and um, count them off. So there, there is, you know, it's an amazing thing for women to see role models yeah. um, who are successful. And it's like uh, Lisa Cronin, Janine Tesori said at the Tony Awards, when Fun Home won, you need to see it to be it. And if we don't see our role models, if women, similarly to people of color, like if they're, they don't see people who look like them doing it, it's hard to believe that they can. So that's one of the things that um, the league does is, you know, we put um, these women who are achieving at such a high level um, on a platform where people can see their achievements. And um, that's so important because um, it sometimes takes women longer to get the recognition for the same achievements. Yeah. yeah. So let's dive into something. I want to start off by announcing it again, because I still think it's a good idea, and I think it'll spur into a different discussion than the last one I had. But I, want, I need somebody to want to champion this idea. Complicated issue, but I think I've identified something that could move the needle pretty fast. Okay. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Came early in there, okay. like leaning in. Like, We're what like, is it? Tell what us yes. what the secret yes. is, please. There's Title IX at universities. Okay. okay. They have to have equal access to athletics for women as for men, right? Okay. Why does this not apply to the plays theater departments put on for their paying students? I think we all know that about 70 to 80% of drama students in most departments are women. And that that percentage is reversed for the number of roles available yeah. in the season they pick. I mean, I don't know. I could say, like, off the top of my head that I think that drama departments aren't approaching training and education of their students with a commercial viewpoint to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like many students, even from universities where they're getting fantastic educations, come out sorely underprepared for the commercial business of theater. It, it's an industry. And um, I think, too, that there is a mindset in many American theater programs that are very classic driven. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it is very important to know and respect the classics because they are the building blocks, but there isn't necessarily um, an openness to exploring them with a new lens. Mm -hmm. um, and it is at the cost of exploring about what's happening contemporaneously around with theater. Yeah. So, um, I mean, Working at Ensemble Studio Theater, I begin to hear more and more about playwrights whose work, um, the writers who are working there, there are colleges that are reaching out to them for work. And so they are going to see more of a diversity of roles and um, both in terms of gender and ethnicities. Um, but, um, you know, there was there was something in the news um, yesterday and Facebook, or maybe Facebook feeds would be more appropriate than to say news, 
about the production in Oregon where um, the rug was pulled out on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf because a black actor was cast as Nick and the estate said, no, we're we're pulling the rights. And their arguments for it are somewhat compelling, but at the same time, um, that doesn't, that sort of mindset and those sort of compelling arguments don't open up for colleges to take risks and do the same thing. Um, it's particularly dangerous within a state too, because yeah, the person is has passed. You're not. It's not like you're getting author's viewpoint. Yeah. You're getting someone's viewpoint of their viewpoint. Yeah, it's like Brecht's estate. Brecht's estate mixes so many things. I think Brecht would have been like, hell oh, yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give that a whirl. Um, and I can tell you, a playwright that I work with, um, it was an Albie Fellow, and she is a very different, very um, diverse point of view, and he was a huge champion of hers. So I don't know that that necessarily... Well, and it's interesting, too, because he actually... There was another production um, where Martha was uh, cast as a... A a black woman was cast to play Martha, and he gave that the thumbs up. He was still alive for that Mm -hmm. production Um, because it used to be that they would send in the actor's headshots. The the estate has to approve the casting before... Mm -hmm. It goes in place. So that's part of the problem with this production, too, is that yeah. they didn't adhere by that. But yeah. um, but I do think that there is a mindset that um, people want to be dramaturgically appropriate. And so they use that as an excuse to keep it white male, as opposed to sort of blowing it open and thinking, what else can it be? I'm really excited about Julius Caesar in the park this summer because Brutus and Antony are being played by women. And I mean, there's been this trend right now. Um, last summer, we had the all-female taming of the shrew in Central Park and with the public theater. And then St. Anne's Warehouse did a whole, um, has been doing this series. I'm trying to think of the director's name. Um, who- they, they came in from, um, it's the, the production that came in with uh, Harriet Walt, Walters acting, yes. Who, um, and she did like Lady Macbeth and, and they did, they did all women productions from um, Shakespeare, from Shakespeare as well, and uh, they, they're it's like a women's like it's conceived as like a women's prison staging the is it? the, the sh- something like that. I'm not. That's cool. rem- I didn't get to see it, but I think you know like. It's, but how it's, much could the landscape change if colleges were required by law to provide a casting it's a that step- matched their paying? It is a step. It is football a, yeah. and sports aren't even the academics. They're paying for a theater education. They are. And the opportunities that go alongside with it are not matching. It is. I think it is very compelling. I think the one thing that may become frustrating out of that is stepping into the real world and not having that kind of the same opportunities. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the difference between sports, you know, with Title mm. IX sports... There is a broad view of knowing, like, well, I'm, you know, I might get to play lacrosse in the Olympics, but I really do need to still get my business degree. Like, so it's not, there's not a sense of, like, I'm going to be earning money as a professional sports player as much as there would be, like, this is my, theater is my vocation. So I think that it's a great building block, and it would start to create awareness on both sides of the aisle in that generation. 
But I don't think they're still getting prepared for the real world anyway. When a school casts their favorites over and over in the lead, yeah. routinely I see they go into the real world and have no idea the competition they're about to face. Oh. Anyway. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, true. So, I mean, I understand your argument, but this is also the see it to be it. If the first place where a lot of women are getting their introduction to theater is seeing this white male lens at a university, that's what they become thinking it is. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, my, my thoughts on trickle is... Or all it can be. Yeah, or all it can be. But, you know, part of it is that, you know, we're talking right now simply about, like, the actors at these universities. To me, what will really change the ne- move the needle is when we see more women playwrights, women directors, women producers, and artistic directors. Yes. Yeah. The decision makers are the ones that need to change because when the people who are programming and writing the shows are women mm-hmm. um, and directing the shows are women, we're going to see more women's stories being told. The, the truth of it is, is if you look at Broadway, a lot of the stories being told are white male stories or white stories or male stories. And so um, we need to diversify the type of stories we tell and who's telling them and who's producing them. And, you know, when that starts to change, what we're going to see, we're going to move a little closer to parody then. I agree. I think a lot of certain acting and and, and I'll be, be, I mean, like I I know nothing's ever that simple, but still, if the market isn't there, if the demand isn't there for companies willing to put on these shows, I mean, I know, for instance, there was a study that for Pulitzer Prize winning novels, that still the majority of women who won a Pulitzer, the main character was a male. Um, but that, you know what, that is a falsehood yeah. that's been, like, spread throughout this no, industry. Yeah. I hear this I hear from that. a lot of male, like, older producers yeah, um, who say, you know what, the problem, for years people said, the problem is, is that, you know, um, stories of people of color, stories of women aren't the ones that sell tickets. Well, I'm sorry, I think shows like Hamilton have proved yeah, that's so wrong. Eclipse. I, <laughs> I think Eclipse has proved that <laughs> wrong. Um and frankly, women's stories mm-hmm. do sell on Broadway. The majority of uh, Broadway ticket buyers are, and nationwide um, subscription buyers are women who are um, 45 to 65 and up. Mm-hmm. So um, I do think that that is um, a myth. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's something that, you know, it's challenging because so many artistic directors are really great guys who are liberals and they have wide world views. Yes. And yet the, the difficulty is getting past the hurdle of recognizing that there still is an unconscious bias mm-hmm. about the stories you relate to as an individual. And ultimately that's what we go with in our gut of like, Oh, mm-hmm. this is the story that speaks to me. Mm-hmm. This is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. We need to do this. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we're looking at as a league is um, in terms of engaging artistic directors and producers and those who are making uh, programming and hiring decisions is how do we, before you make that final decision, how do we engage you in one more conversation mm-hmm. where you are making sure that you have truly looked at all of the options in, in, in what can best serve the community and so that you're putting on shows that reflect, that can hold up the mirror to your audience. And um, so that's one of the things that we're looking at right now at the League and, and maybe possibly introducing a program in 
the fall that um, can sort of uh, help move that needle along and, and get people to think about that. And I think, you know, our apprentice program is particularly helpful in that way because um, it gives people the opportunity, young people out of school, the opportunity to learn from women who are working in the business. And it's, um, it's a different thing to negotiate things and see how you're received in a space as a man or a woman. So to have female role models is a tremendous thing. The way that, um, you know, a woman can handle herself in a room and is listened to and um, is, is just inherently different. So it's, but it's great for um, these young women to have these professional role models. And I think it's so important, something that the league is doing that's so important because if you go around and look um, at uh, a lot of companies, you'll see two things. One, you'll see a lot of young women who have opportunities as interns and early in their careers, um, and then it gets more sparse as they get older. Um, and so to have those role models who are doing that um, at uh, mid-career, mid uh, later in their career, it's very important. And two, um, you'll also see, like you said mm, about yeah. Title IX, there's yeah. so many more young men getting those opportunities because if the men are at the top, a lot of times they want to nurture somebody who reminds them of themselves when they were younger. Mm -hmm. But those things are limiting women. And it's not a, it's, it's not a conscious decision no, to do it. No, it's mm -hmm. unconscious. And so the more we talk about it, the more it might flag uh, in someone's mind as they're about to make a decision or about to make that choice to do it of like, oh, I could actually shift and choose differently just this once and see what happens. One of the things, and to sort of piggyback on the importance of seeing role models, and I think that's important at every stage of the career. Like, mm -hmm. I've been doing it for, you know, I've been in the city for 20 years, and I still need that fire of, like, keep on keeping on, because this mm -hmm. is ultimately the reward is in that inspiration and being able to do the work. It's not yes. in... The, you know, theater doesn't pay yeah. a whole lot of money. And um, and so, and to keep <laughs> doing that, you what? need... What? Oh, man. Like, What's going shit. on? I got it. What are we all doing here? Yeah, yeah. So, the, um, something else that the League does that's really uh, such a valuable mm -hmm. resource, I think, for theater artists is our oral history program. Ugh. We interview women who have had really solid... Careers, like for example, this year we our, our program interviewed Judith Light, Laura Linney, and we're closing it out with Paula Vogel on Living Jim Legends. Yeah. You know, people who have really had just have been in the trenches, have known the ups and downs, and um, I mean, think about the career Paula Vogel had, and this is her first year on Broadway. Yeah. I mean, come on, people. I mean, she really is in the canon of the great American writers, yeah. and. Um, and this is her first year on her Broadway. Her first year on Broadway. And that in itself, if, if anybody ever ha has a question about parody, that, yeah. that answers it right there. Right there. And But so to sit and listen to, and oftentimes a, they choose who's going to interview them. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes it's a colleague or a collaborator mm -hmm. and, um, or, you know, a good friend who's, who's maybe in a different discipline, but a, a fellow. So um, Linda Weiner is going to be interviewing Paula Vogel. And... Um, to listen to these women and and um, the the bag of tools that they've developed for themselves is always um, 
so helpful, at, no matter your stage of career. And that's like, and that's a benefit of membership in the league is that league members can reserve seats at this. Um, members of the public can come. Um, it's at the Lincoln Center on June fifth. Yes, yeah, the Library for the six. Performing Arts Auditorium, and we have a. It's a beautiful, beautiful little venue. space, um, and it's very nice. It's like. You know, there's we're familiar. If you're familiar with inside the actor studio, it's something like this, but it's only a hundred people in the room, mm -hmm. and um, they choose their interviewers. So it has this beautiful intimacy where you're having living history handed to you. Yeah, and uh, and that's just yeah, that's one of the the many sort of bag of tricks that the league has mm -hmm. in trying to um, draw awareness to women working in theater and. Um, giving women in theater a chance to network with each other and be in that room. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a really incredibly inspiring evening. If every year when we make our calendar for the year, I mark all the oral yes. histories down right away. <laughs> make sure, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for coming down. Thanks so much for having us, Michael. Thank oh, you. yeah, anytime. Cabaret Corner. Before we chat with Ira Lee Collings, let's listen to one more song from him. Here's Lost in Loveliness. What's your name? Scott. Now, I know we've never met before, Scott. No. <laughs> but during my last number, I looked out and I saw this light coming right on your gleaming head, just like mine. Only I got makeup on, it's probably not quite as shiny, but maybe. <laughs> and something told me I just had to bring you up here. <laughs> and say something to you. Well, musically, of course. <laughs> so uh, if you'll be good enough to drape, I mean, to sit on there on that stool. Sure, lay down with another stool. <laughs> oh, that would be nice, too, but. I am 73 and a half. I have to protect my heart, you know. I have to be careful. And with, with some great deal of help from the lads, I'll try to collect my thoughts. <laughs> Never have I beheld beauty like this. Before, never have I so wanted anyone's kiss before. What a thrill you are! What a sight to see! Something the eye. Mortals have no right to see. Am I on the earth or in the sky? Lost in loveliness, am I? As I look at you, I forget myself. I could go mad about you. If I let myself, should I let myself pass me by, lost in loveliness, am I?
what's more, I know how dangerous you are. <laughs> if I were wise, I'd close my eyes or walk away and worship from afar. In the lonely night, you would haunt my heart. And I would pray that one day you might want my heart. And I'd have to live my whole life through. Lost in loveliness and lost in love for you. We have Cabaret performing artist, Ira Lee uh, Collings. Collings, yeah. Ira Lee Collins. They call me Collins, but it's I-N-G-S. It's yes. not Collins. And uh, this guy, you wouldn't know it to look at him, because he doesn't seem a day past 20, <laughs> but he's 81, um, loves performing with kind of the moniker that comes out of gay geezer power. Yay! <laughs> Bring it on. And uh, he's got a cabaret show coming up. Yes. In June, in okay. June, at Don't Tell Mama. It's called uh, Life is a Song, so why not sing it? <laughs> so, and, get, and weed power. I'm, uh, weed songs. Uh, you know, they think the British came over with all the weed songs okay. and the drugs and whatever. But if you look back at some of the early American songwriters and some of these lyrics, you can see they had a bit of the weed in them when they wrote these things. So I include uh, at least two of them into, in my show. So how often are you doing gigs? Because this interview will be up for a long time. And I'm not sure if it'll be up before you're yeah. this thing or not. That's fine. But I, I get the impression you are performing out quite often. Well, yes. It's three, three performances in June. And then I hope to do it again in October. Uh, in order to get... to get a Mac nomination, you have to do it four times. <laughs> so we try to sneak in at least four, four or five performances. And uh, if, I, I'm sure you know Don't Tell Mama. You must have been there. I love Don't Tell Mama. Yeah. yeah. Actually, when, way back when, when I was first, uh, you know, just coming and trying out for school, I ha had to go to Don't Tell Mama to try With out. Sidney Meyer, the man is a saint. He keeps that place going. He's so kind to everybody. He books you. You know, they pay you that same night. You don't have to wait for months like at other places. We won't mention names. But there are places you have to wait for several months to get your money. And uh, it's just a, such a, a warm, friendly place. You know, you walk in there and you really feel at home. And, it, and it's because of all the cabaret people and they've been coming there for all these many, many years, you know. And uh, I've been doing cabaret 10 years there. And it took me a long time to get started because when I sang many years ago, I came to New York <coughs> and they said, oh, you, you have a wonderful voice, but you're obviously gay. <laughs> and that's going to hurt you. But this was how long ago? Well, when I came here in the 60s. Yeah. 
And uh, so that didn't make me feel too well, too good uh, and happy I would, about all this. I think things this, might have shifted. You know? I feel like sometimes they might say, well, you're a gifted cabaret singer, but you're obviously straight, and that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, my, right away I won a, uh, a contest at a gay bar, just like Barbara, and only she went on to other things. I didn't. But um, <clears throat> it was, um, I, I got a weekend there with Dawn Hampton. You probably don't remember that name of a cabaret performer. She just passed this year, but she was, a wonderful singer, and she just, her connection with an audience, I'd never seen that with before. When I first started singing, I got up, and I would sing, and everybody talk for the entire song, yeah. <coughs> and I'd, I'd stop singing, and they'd stop talking. <laughs> I'd sing another song, talk through my whole song. Well, I wasn't giving, I wasn't communicating anything other than I would just stand there singing. I hadn't connected with the idea of what is, what, what's in a song, you're, you're telling a story, and you have to connect with your audience yeah. for them to get anything. <coughs> and through Dawn Hampton, through watching her perform, you know, over and over, uh, I, one night I said, what is your secret to communication? She said, well, singing is like a wheel. You give off to the audience, they pick it up, and they send it back, and, and that's how you communicate. Took me about another 50 years to really sink into what the hell she was talking about. But finally, I think I connected with what she was saying, and now I have communication with my audience. But it's a, it's a big thing to learn. You can see a lot of, when you go to open mics, you can see a lot of people who are still just singing and not connecting yeah. with the lyrics. And then you see, you see all these people who are supposedly coaches, and you see their students, and you say, what the hell are they doing? What are they? They're not helping these. They're nice people. They're not helping them communicate their songs. They're taking their money and, and saying, "Well, we'll put you. Don't tell mamas." And of eight weeks, you pay us, you know, X amount of dollars, and then we'll let you go come to Don't Tell Mama and with your friends and do a performance. And uh, but they don't help the person learn to perform the song properly. So that's one of my pet peeves. Is uh, and the other, the other is at an open mic when people get up and say, I've never sung this song before. Well, get the hell <laughs> off stage and <laughs> learn the goddamn song and then come back and then uh, perform it. Don't, I don't want to see you out there going, mm -hmm, you know, and try it. And they do it constantly. People get up and say, oh, it's the first time. One of the guys always, I said, if you say that one more time, I'm going to kick you right in the balls. Yeah, I think people need to realize that open mic at a piano bar is a very different thing than karaoke. Oh, oh yeah, well, <laughs> yes. But yeah. I think that I imagine that's probably what has influenced that more and more idea of like, oh, I haven't done this before. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not fair, first of all, to the audience. It's not fair to the guy who's playing for you either, you know, and... We're really lucky in New York. We have some of the very best piano players around playing at open mics. The good thing about Mac, being a Mac member, Manhattan Association of Cabarets and Clubs, is that uh, once a month they have an open mic uh, at one of the different cabarets, and they provide a top pianist. So we just don't have to pay the cover to come in. We just pay for the two drinks and get to work with some wonderful musician once a month. So that's really a blessing. Because uh, 
you learn a lot by working with really good people, good musicians, and not having to pay the extra money to pay for them. You know, that, that's a, a big bonus. So I'm really, we're really grateful that uh, we have that. So, um, well, I'd, I'd like to touch more on what you're talking about of how you learned how to tell a story and, and perform through cabaret. Because you're right, there's a lot. I, I, I see tons and tons of singers who know how to hit the high notes, know how to belt everything out and be impressive, but they don't, I don't think they realize that they aren't making an impression because there's a thousand people in, you know, 10,000 people or more in New York that have, can hit all those notes. And ultimately, it is how you, how you decide to tell a story that makes mm -hmm. you unique. Yeah. So if you, if you can remember back to some of that process as you were discovering how you were going to put, and I know it can be different for every person, but um, it might be worth some people hearing your process of discovery and how to. Well, one of my big breakthroughs was I did dinner theater for m many years, and uh, I met this guy, George Patalis, when we were doing The Odd Couple down in the deep south. I, I was Vinny, I had the smallest part, and he was, he was uh, Oscar, I think. And uh, one day he, call, he called me on the phone, and he could hardly breathe. He was on a, I think it was on a respirator or something at the time. He said, ah, I, I finally got them figured out. What, what is his, how to sing, sing a song? I have to tell you this. And through all this breathiness, he said that, think the lyric before you sing it. Think the lyric before. I said, but that, wouldn't that confuse you? You know, you're going to think the lyric first before you sing it, but it, it worked. You think the lyric before you sing it so that when you sing it, your thought and your emotion are in the line. So your story, you're telling the story as you, that thought hits you and then it comes out in the song, and it, it connects you to tell, you tell your story that way. Because it's like it's, each, each moment is fresh, because you're just thinking it. And you let it out. And that it relieves you from worrying about the audience or the, anybody. You know, you're, you're working, you're thinking yourself. Uh, Streisand once said, they said, well, you know, don't you get nervous when you said, no, I'm too busy working, doing what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, and I've told that to several of my students, too, including uh, somebody who's sitting right here helping take notes, is that the more you're prepared, the more you're prepared to fill those spaces and fill those holes, when you have those important auditions or you're performing for someone important, you're going to be a lot less nervous because you're so consumed with Filling up everything, all what the you're doing, you're, what you're telling, yeah. yeah, how you're communicating with the audience, and it uh, it it relaxes you too. Yeah, it just relaxes you, and you can just do it, you know. And then you feel that communication. It's uh, because I've seen people get up and they get so uptight, you know, because they're they're looking at everybody and they're trying to sing and not thinking about the lyric, and there's no communication. So it took me a long time. I'm 81, and it took me, yeah. I would probably say, well, I've been doing it 10 years, so 70. It probably was in my 60s when I came back. I, I left it for a while and took a job at, at Forbes magazine and worked there until I was 62 and then retired. 
And then uh, I, I didn't start up again for several years. From but theater and cabaret to Forbes. To Forbes. Would you believe <laughs> it? Oh, my God. I snuck in the back door. I didn't have even a... I barely made it through high school, but when it came to college, I didn't even go to college. I went to the Goodman Theater in Chicago. But um, they needed somebody to uh, read numbers back and forth with somebody else, and they hired me, and they paid above average at the time, you know, above the minimum wage. And it was an easy thing to do, so I stayed there for, and then I'd go off and do dinner theater, and then I'd come back, and they'd let me come back. <laughs> and uh, Malcolm was a great guy. He really, really was a, a nice man. And uh, so Did you do cabaret also as well before your gig at Forbes? Mm, I started doing it at, some of it at, when I was at Forbes. Okay. I in the first few years, because some of them came to my show. I didn't get any of the Forbeses to come, but yeah. uh, the people I worked with uh, came to my early shows. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, we used to go, every summer we'd go out to my, his uh, wonderful estate for a day out, and he'd have the best steaks and the biggest cigars, and he was the Donald Trump of his day, you know, and he was nice. <laughs> So how do you put together a through line for your cabaret shows? What things are you looking for? What, you know, you can use your current show as an example if you'd like, but uh, how, what's your process in selecting those songs, putting together the whole evening? Well, this particular piece, um, I took the idea. First, I, I thought back on what songs influenced me from a kid, you know, uh, I'm the youngest of eight kids. My brothers and sisters all like country and western music. We were from Indiana, a small town. And, but I, my ear went to pop music from the radio. And then your hit parade, which later became a big TV series, your hit parade with uh, Snooky Lanson and Dorothy Collins and Giselle McKenzie. And they dramatized each, each week, they dramatized these songs, the top 10 songs. So, I decided then for this show, I would take that formula, that format, and do pinpoint 10 songs that caught my ear down through, the, through time and how that affected my taste in music, plus weed songs and other little surprises I'm, yeah. I'll be putting into as well. So that's it's, it's sort of like, you know, a, a, Trip down memory lane of these songs that affected me when I, uh, all the way through my life, and that's the basic basic theme of this show. Well, Ira Lee Collings, it's been a pleasure having you <clears> with us. Well, thank you for having me. Good luck with your cabaret. Hello gig. to Montana. <laughs> I've never been there, but um, you never know. Yeah, it's you should come out sometime. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, thank you. Curtain call. Well, all good things must come to an end, but not this season yet. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff coming up, uh, and I'm going to tease you some of these things coming up ahead. We've got Rick Ellis doing an incredible in-depth interview um, about the Jersey Boys' return and his whole career. We've also got Glenn Slater talking about Love Never Dies, his work with Disney, his work with Alan Menken and Andrew Lloyd Webber, and... So basically we got two like big masterclasses from some of the great writers. That's awesome. We've got Rodney Ingram, who's in Phantom of the Opera as the new Raul. 
We've got musicians from Come From Away. We've got actors from Come From Away. We have got so much good stuff. It's like unbelievable. So um, a couple of these things are dealing with shows that um, are playing like right now. So we want to get information out. So you're going to be getting a new episode a week for two or three weeks here. Um, yeah, we want to get out the next three episodes uh, before December's over. So uh, welcome. And you're going to get a plethora of stuff. So um, check out on BroadwayBull.com. Um, spread the word. Uh, tell all your friends and uh, check out the University of Providence Theater and Business Arts Program and another choice nugget from our location sponsors, the DGF, Dramatist Guild Foundation. They have tips on writing from the masters. Check out their YouTube page, youtube.com slash DGFDN to watch episodes of The Legacy Project. In this documentary series, luminaries like Stephen Sondheim, Terrence McNally, Lisa Crone, Charles Fuller, and many more give gems of advice and talk about their lives as writers of theater. All right, again, for any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. And I would like to thank our associate producer for this half of the season, Catherine Chandler, a student from the University of Providence, who came out to help with this, this half of the season. All right, thanks, and we will see you again next week.